This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. My crew is kind of saying, why are we doing mound layering again? We're sick and tired of mound layering. And if I remember right, last fall when we were sorting the thousands of plants we made, you said, we're never doing this again. So, <laughs> <laughs> glad to hear you're doing it again. Welcome back to The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. We have new new faces joining us this year. Stefan Mursky, welcome. New to Extension, but not new to the Upper Midwest. Tell us about yourself. Who are you? What are you doing? What's your new gig? Yeah, thanks, Jason. Um, I'm brand new here. Um, Just started in my position as outreach specialist through UW-Madison on the Emerging Crops team about two weeks ago. Prior to this, I spent 10 years at Seed Savers Exchange, a nonprofit in Northeast Iowa, Decorah, Iowa, doing evaluations on the varieties in the seed collection there. So yeah, I'm not all that familiar with hazelnuts, but uh, I'm excited to learn about them. And um, I look forward to, to learning from all of our interviewees here on this, on this program. Good, Stefan. Glad to have you. I'm looking forward to working with you on the podcast. Uh, Our guests from last year, or our host, will also be joining back in as we continue the series here. We're looking forward to some hemp podcasts coming up in the near future. But but today, the focus is hazelnuts. For whatever reason, hazelnuts have been the most popular episodes on our podcast from uh, our first 26 episodes or so. So we thought uh, today, kicking back off our series, we would focus on hazelnuts and just give a kind of a round-robin update of what's happening in the hazelnut world in the Midwest got a couple of researchers from the Upper Midwest Hazelnut Development Initiative that we'll be talking to today. Ready, Stefan? I'm ready to go. Okay, let's do it. it. Hello? Mark, it's Jason. How's it going? Hey, morning. Pretty good. Good. Hey, um, can you introduce yourself for the the listeners before we get going? Sure. Uh, Yeah, my name is Mark Hammond. Um, I work as a research technician for the University of Minnesota's Hazelnut Project. I work as Lois Braun's um, assistant, basically. And I've been doing that job for a little bit more, or this job for a little bit more than three years. And before that, I worked for Philip Rudder at Badgerset for about three years. Cool, thanks, Mark. So what we wanna know is what you're working on these days. Like literally, let's start with what are you gonna do today? Today, I am going to do some cleanup and organizational jobs at work, water plants in the greenhouse, and then probably spend most of the day hand weeding uh, the regrowth on plants that we are going to be um, mound mound layering in a couple of weeks for making uh, more clones of plants that we want for research purposes. Got it. So it seems like I mean, for all of us right now, the focus is propagation, propagation, propagation. So maybe let's start there. T- tell us about the mound layering you're doing. What are you mound layering? Why are you doing it? Where are those plants going to end up? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
why we're doing it. So mound layering uh, is a technique for it's you know you cut a plant off uh, or fully to the ground when it regrows uh, and the stems are. Uh, we usually start in late June and work for about two weeks. And the new growth, we add rooting hormone to it and bury it under sawdust and makes uh, can turn one plant into maybe a couple dozen copies. Um, and who gets them? Uh, we'll use some of them for research trials. We have other partners on farm trials. Uh, that's, yeah, that's mostly what they get used for. And we want them because they're uh, most of the plants that we're mound layering are top selections that we would like to uh, to propagate uh, clonally for commercial purposes. So I just uh, heard just your phone ding. About. Did you just get a text from Lois wondering where you are? <laughs> uh, no, I <laughs> got a text from our new student worker. All right. Well, I better not keep you long. Hour, hour early. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So mound layering, um, what else have you got going on? Uh, how's the seed layering project going? Yeah, at this point, um, uh, a project that we um, attempted this winter and spring. Uh, so we basically have the, the issue of needing to make more clones of plants that we want. Mound layering is reliable, but the major issue with it is that it just doesn't multiply plants fast enough. If you have one full-size plant. If you mound layer it, you might get, uh, you know, a handful to maybe 30, 40, 50 plants off of it. And you can only do it once a year. So it's, it's reliable for many of the varieties that we want to make more clones of, but it's slow. And so the project that we were working on this spring was uh, grafting um, and then, uh, so grafting to newly germinated seeds, a variety that we want. And then if the, when the graft takes and the new shoot of the variety that we want is growing on the graft, trying to layer that, which basically means just burying it, uh, within the pot and, uh, applying rooting hormones so that it pops its own roots with the idea that we would then detach it from the seedling root system. And then we have a clone of what we want on its own plants. And it was a lot of work and the basic but the basic idea of it is that we can, um, with crafting, you're only using a couple of buds and a plant has thousands of buds on it. So it could have a higher multiplication rate. Uh, it hasn't really worked all that well. There's just multiple points in the process where there's attrition. Some of the grafts don't take, some of them don't grow vigorously enough. Some of them get hurt with rooting hormone. We were trying to do um, growing the plants in the dark for a certain portion of their um uh, the beginning of their life basically uh with the hope that that uh so they, the growth that looks like a bean sprout almost growing in the dark would be easier to root but what it it has made a um some of it works but probably not at a high enough rate to um do that exact technique again but it has made a lot of uh plants that we can continue growing as stock plants for other techniques for propagating them, primarily cuttings. So at this point, um, it's just keeping track of the plants that are still actively rooting. Not many of them are at this point and just maintaining them for using as stock plants for cuttings in a couple of weeks and then continuing to grow them uh, for next year, basically for cuttings. Got it. So are you doing some of the cuttings work too? 
now that you've got some of those stock plants? Yeah, we we're also doing uh, preparing plants in the field for taking cuttings from, and we'll probably be taking ones from the graphs at the same time. And that'll probably be in about two weeks from now. And then it takes, we're expecting it to take three to four weeks for them to root. And so we'll, we'll be maintaining those plants we're using as cuttings for, you know, most of the summer. Okay. Yeah. So you've got mound layering that's going to start up soon. You've, you're man, maintaining these stock plants, stem cuttings. What else is going on? Um, lots of the normal summer maintenance jobs. Uh, we have uh, a good size new research planting uh, that are all controlled cross seedlings. That's up in Becker, Minnesota, which is about an hour northwest of the Twin Cities where I live. And those were planted in the fall. So there's, you know, weed whacking and the staff there does the mowing, but weed whacking, uh, spot spray, weed control when it's necessary. And uh, yeah, our other Rose Mountain, St. Paul, uh, <laughs> just you know, keeping them mowed, keeping them yeah. relatively tidy, doing woody weed control, things like that. So that new Becker planting, that's the controlled cross stuff, the good stuff. How many plants are there from in the fall? From what we planted, yeah, the Becker field has, also has plants that were planted about four years ago. I think we planted about 1,500. Okay. Last Any idea on survival, how, how that came through the winter on a percentage? Yeah, we were there about a week ago. Um, we didn't take full numbers, but pretty good, you know somewhere between 80 and 90 percent i think got it uh, and the plants that that look like they haven't survived or either are you know s starting to regrow really really slowly um were generally the the plants that looked like they were weak going into it so it not necessarily a cold hardiness thing probably a, just a problem with how it was growing in the pot sure and the question all growers wrestle with for fall planting do you put a tree tube a tree shelter on it or not did you guys use them uh, we didn't. The because um, uh, we, we it would have been purely for um, for like wind protection or something like that because the yeah. the, the site is deer fenced, so um, that wasn't not having to worry about the animals wasn't a, a factor for us. All right, and they came through we the winter okay without them. Good to know. Yeah, there was. I mean, I would say you know. Most of them did not leaf out on the full, like the full length of the growth that they were growing on last summer. Uh, so a bunch of them, you know, got knocked back by at least a couple of buds. But the growth at this point for most of those plants, you know, looks good. So it doesn't seem like it's been much of a problem. And exactly how to attribute that to a tree tube or not, you know, we didn't run an experiment. So we can't say one way or another. Sure. Yeah. It seemed, it seemed acceptable. Yeah. All right. So I know you're always thinking about hazelnuts and what's next and blah, blah, blah. What, uh, what's on your mind these days when it comes to the overall hazelnut project, what's got you excited or are you intrigued by? Yeah, I'm really encouraged by the success that, uh, uh, Dane Hauser is having so far with, uh, semi softwood, semi hardwood cuttings. And I think, uh, you know, being able to partner with, other people with other expertise in the in the private sector is really important. So that's um, 
that's that's definitely promising because you know, propagation has just been this really difficult issue for a, a lot longer than I've been involved with hazelnuts. So it's uh, it's exciting to see some stuff that looks like progress there. Yeah, you know that's a good point. I think we should call Dane and uh, chat him up to see how things are going uh, with the propagation because that's uh, like you said a huge bottleneck right now. All right. Well, we'll let you get back to work. Thanks for the update. All right. And uh, say hi to Lois and the crew. Will do. All right. We're going to stay in Minnesota. We just talked to Mark uh, Hammond, who's been working on a lot of propagation stuff recently. And now we're talking to uh, Lois Braun. Lois, you want to introduce yourself quick? Actually, it's Brown. Fine. Lois Brown. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Everyone calls me Fitchbach, and I, I let it slide. Well, I Sometimes. usually let it slide. It's just that uh, it'll propagate itself. Um, if plus, you I should know by now. Plus, you should know by now. <laughs> right. Uh, so I'm Lois Brown. I work on um, hazelnut breeding and agronomics and propagation here at the University of Minnesota. Uh, basically, if the work is outdoors, I'm involved. And awesome. if it's in a greenhouse, I'm involved. So... So uh, what are you doing today? Um, we are working on gearing up for two big projects. One is the mound layering, which we have uh, been doing uh, every year. I think this is the fourth year in a row we've done mound layering on a fairly large scale. And this year we're doing it on an even larger scale than last year, but only by a few plants. The mound layering is, um, as many people in the hazelnut world know, it's the only currently reliable method of hazelnut propagation. It involves lying down on our stomachs in the field amidst the, um, the itchy grass and insects and tying twisties to the bases of stems of hazelnuts and then applying rooting hormone right above that and piling it all with moist sawdust. And so, Lois, just to clarify, this is the only proven propagation method that's been working for our Americana derived material, but worldwide there are other methods like tissue culture and whatever correct. else. Correct. Those methods just haven't worked for our material yet. Correct. Right. And um, my crew is kind of saying, why are we doing mound layering again? We're sick and tired of mound layering. And if I yeah. remember right, last fall when we were sorting the thousands of plants you made, you said, we're never doing this again. So <laughs> glad to hear you're doing it again. Well, I'll tell you, it does. It is satisfying in the sense that you get results. It's painful when we do it, but we it's very satisfying when it works and it does work the most majority of the time. And um, I have been saying, however, that uh, this will be our last year. <laughs> so, and the perk is that some of the out out um outstate sites where we work are very very pretty and i like excuses to go to these pretty places and um, you've put out some really nice publications about the mound layering methods that you've you've optimized are, are you making any big changes to your systems this year um last year our biggest change was figuring out how to 
um, how to harvest the stems more efficiently uh, because as uncomfortable it is setting up the mound layers, the problem with harvesting them is that we are under a big time crunch because we're pushing the edges of winter. We're trying to get it all done, the plants in, sorted, graded, uh, distributed before winter comes in. And so we're under such time pressure at harvest time. So last year, our biggest um, innovation was using pruning saws, two-person project process, one person pulling back on the stems uh, with a, a rake or a, a corn fork. Uh, don't get me started about corn for forks. They're very, very dangerous tools. But anyway, a corn fork works really well. Uh, you pull back on the stems underneath the root mass and another person saws it with a, a very long pruning saw. It works. It's still a lot of work. Um, I mean, it's still a lot of effort. Um, but it, uh, compared to our previous method, I think it actually produces healthier roots because there's less tearing. So that was our biggest innovation. Um, we were hoping to recruit a commercial nursery to start doing it with us. Um, they look at what's involved and they are not interested. They are interested in stem cuttings. So mm -hmm. um, we have to develop that method. So the other thing that's making us go crazy right now is we are gearing up for stem cutting research. And we've already implemented um, two treatments. Um, this is in collaboration with Dr. Brandon Miller, who is a new horticulture faculty member. And so we've implemented etiolation, which is um, going on three weeks ago, we put um, 10 totes, you know, the plastic tubs um, upside down out in the field over the emerging um, crown suckers of hazelnuts to completely shade out the light. Uh, we covered the totes with white plastic so that they wouldn't overheat. We left them on for two weeks. Um, last Friday, we took them off and we replaced them with other totes, actually laundry baskets, uh, from which we had cut the bottoms out. And then we put shade cloth over the laundry baskets so that they'd get filtered lights. So the idea of this is that we develop etiolated stems, which are basically retain their juvenility. So um, we take the totes off and the stems, the crown suckers, which normally are bright green at this point, are this ghostly yellow. Uh, they're tall and skinny. They're looking for the light and they can't find it. How tall so did they get in those tubs? Did um, they reach the top of the tub? They reached the tops of the tubs. Wow. And surprisingly, they were quite stiff. So anyway, um, we the reason why we replaced the tubs with shade cloth is because you don't want to take the tubs off and have them instantly get burned by by the sun. So today, um, Mark and a student worker are out there removing the shade cloth because the shade has been on long enough. Mm -hmm. And um, then last week, and again, we will do this tomorrow, we put on um, Velcro bands um, 
we put some Velcro brand bands. These are an inch wide um, by one and a half inch long bands of Velcro, uh, two pieces sandwiched together, um, clamped against the base of the hazelnuts, the suckers stems. And we had, um, we put some on the etiolated stems, some on the non-etiolated stems, and then some on canopy shoots um, to see how those work. And half of the half of the Velcro bands had IBA on them, and half of them did not. So we'll see how that works. So we put those out last Friday, and we're going to put additional ones out tomorrow. So part of what I'm screwing around doing, it, it took a long time to figure out the right kind of band and where to buy them. And so last week we used up everything we had bought, so I had to buy more. So I've got to um, I've got to go and buy some paint so we can distinguish we can paint the bands as well, so we can distinguish the bands that we apply tomorrow from the ones we applied last week because we don't want to get those mixed up because we want to know the duration of the bands on them. So just to circle back a little bit, so you've got a mound layered plant, you grew it in the tub. How old were those plants? Like ten years old? They're pretty. These big. are plants that were mound layered last year. And these plants were, most of them were planted sometime between 2008 and 2011. Okay, so they're pretty so old. So they're 11 to 13 years old. So roughly how many bands did you apply per plant? Like 100, 50, 10? Um, we put out 900 bands total last week. Wow. And well, No wonder your employees love working for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And we're hoping to put out another 900 tomorrow. Okay. So um, each one of those bands then will be a stem cutting that you'll try to root. Correct. Wow. Correct. And some of the some of the stems have multiple bands per shoot and some of them only have one. Yep. And the, the problem with this line of research is that there are so many potential variables that it's really hard to keep track of them all. Right. So we can design an experiment where we have, uh, you know, two node cuttings and we have eight, eight stems for each treatment within, yeah, for eight, eight treatments. So we've actually got a three by three factorial, so it's nine treatments. But then you get to the plant and you say, this plant doesn't have enough stems to do that with. Right. And so you alter the design on that plant, but, you know, and each individual stem itself is unique. So um, I'm regarding this year as kind of the let's make all our mistakes this year, but get a ballpark idea of what works. And then we'll hone it down next year when hopefully we'll have funding for a graduate student to do it, because it really does need to be a graduate project. I'm glad you're doing this work, not me. <laughs> i mean this technique is intriguing because instead of getting let's say you know 30 plants max if all those uh shoots were to layer you might be getting a couple hundred right That's, if all those cuttings take if and... it works if it works yeah. now here's the deal um the banding when we did the banding last week mark said this is just as miserable as as mound layering. <laughs> yeah. 
which was exactly my reaction when I heard about the method. Um, I actually don't think it is quite as miserable because you're working, potentially you're working six inches above ground level instead of at ground level. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but it's, it's nearly as bad. Um, and so Mark and I are both excited about the idea, whether this is realistic or not, of seeing if we can get stems from the canopy to root. Um, when I did stem cutting work years ago, actually, I had better success with canopy suckers, uh, canopy shoots than I did with crown suckers. Um, but there were other factors that might explain that. So if we can get canopy suck, uh, shoots to work, then that'll eliminate the stoop factor, right. which will be huge. Yeah. Uh, but one thing we've already figured out is that to do that, we won't be able to do it from just any plant because most of the stems at the canopy level are not suitable for the process because they have nuts uh, at the developing nuts at the apex of the stem and we could pluck those off which would be a lot of work but we don't know in terms of the plant hormones whether that might have a, an influence but generally the ones that have nuts developing on them are shorter and not not likely to be as effective for for stem cuttings as ones that are purely vegetative yeah. Um, but to to manage a plant for vegetative uh, stem production would involve pruning it, probably pruning it pretty heavily. Sure. But because of my previous hedging trials, I know how we can do that pretty quickly and effectively. Yeah. Well, and regardless, it seems to me like any of these methods that of you know low tech, high labor propagation are probably best suited as a means to generate a lot of stock plants that can be then grown in a greenhouse on a bench at, you know, at chest height, where then you can use that as your source of stem cuttings rather than doing all this in the field, which is Time always- Time will so tell. Easy. Yeah, hopefully yeah. it works. Um, yeah. So moving on to other projects, rumor has it, uh, you all up potted a boatload of seedlings. Is that true? And where did they come from? Ha ha ha. Uh, these were controlled cross seedlings. It's the third year in a row we did controlled cross seedlings. Um, this year, uh, no, actually, let me back up. We did controlled cross seedlings this year for the, uh, we did controlled crosses this year for the third time. Um, and our controlled crosses were, um, this year, the objective was not so much to get seeds because we've got more seeds and seedlings than we have space for in the field, uh, but it was to test compatibility, pollination compatibility. Once we get the seeds, then we'll figure out what to do with them. Uh, the seeds in the greenhouse were from our second year of crosses, and um, they were basically... Uh, to fill out some of the seedling requirements for Scott Brainerd's genomics work, but we gave that seed to Scott and his team to grow out. Um, the 
but we're growing out the remaining seeds. And some of those are crosses of Midwest hybrids, top Midwest hybrids by other top Midwest hybrids. But a lot of them are crosses between Midwest hybrids and um, and Rutgers material. And then we've also got um, a few crosses between our top Midwest hybrids and our putatively top hybrids from um, Oregon State, the ones that are growing in at Rosemount. So in other words, these would be back crosses between, let me see, let's do the math. Um, we've got our hybrids, which are 50% Americana, 50% European. And then we've got the crosses that we made between those and Oregon State material, which would be 75% European. And now we're crossing the 75% European with the 50% European material. And I think the math comes out to the progeny should be um, 60, um, 67 percent American and 30 or yeah, 30, 33 percent European, <laughs> something like that. So I'm excited about those. But the sad story is that two days after we moved them out of the greenhouse, they got hit by a hailstorm. No. So I was cleaning up the greenhouse when it happened. And so I was looking out the window at them frantically trying to figure out if there was any umbrella I could get that was big enough to protect them. When it was all over, it was like shredded lettuce on the ground underneath them. Ugh. So we were feeling pretty despondent. We gave them an egg. We normally move them out of the greenhouse and give them a week to harden off before we start up potting them. But we gave them two weeks. Um, and they are now shooting new leaves. So I estimate we lost maybe 200 seedlings but we had i think 2800 remaining we had about 3000 to start with so we should still be okay in a way it kind of did an early calling for us <laughs> <laughs> so now we've we filled our nursery and we've also got a whole bunch of potted layers in the nursery too so we've we're busy yeah sounds like it Stefan, you've been listening to us blabber on any questions that as a newbie to hazelnuts and haven't worked with it really at all anything intriguing you've heard yeah um yeah like you said i'm i'm, I'm just learning here but uh it's it sounds like propagation is one of the main challenges with hazelnuts and i'm just curious on this new banding technique and how much of an improvement that is over previous techniques yeah, I can chime in a little bit. Uh, the experience we've had, or the theory anyway, is so the, the rooting process takes a long time. So in the greenhouse with softwood cuttings up in Bayfield, we've been working with, it's about four weeks before you, what's called sticking a cutting in the medium and applying the rooting hormone. Uh, four weeks later, you start to get some roots. Some of them, it might take eight weeks, right? So if you're trying to do this on a commercial scale, it, that's too slow, right? You'd like these things to grow roots really fast. So by putting a band on, in theory, it's sort of acting like a pretreatment, 
and it's keeping that stem dark and etiolated. And then if you apply a little bit of rooting hormone, it can start that rooting process before you actually stick it in a, or detach it from the plant, sticking it in the rooting medium. The other part is that when you've got a stem that's starting to elongate, you'd like to get as many cuttings out of that as you can. So each node a cutting, but they have to be at the right growth stage, right? So the, the bud has to be well enough developed so that it'll grow once it, or start to grow once you've established roots on the stem below it. And the other part is the stem itself can't be too young or too old, otherwise it doesn't root very well. So the problem is with, with long, long stem is the middle nodes or inner nodes usually are perfect, but then the shoot tips are too young and the stuff below is too old. So if you put bands on the bottoms of those stems, you can keep those, those inner nodes more viable for stem cutting while you wait for the rest of the inner nodes to, to mature. Plus you've got lots of time for that bud to mature and it's more likely to grow once you've stuck the cutting. So that's the theory. Is it worth the extra labor and cost? Who knows, that's what we're trying to find out. But it's a technique that can be used in other, other woody plants and, and it's not really been tried that we know of in, in hazelnuts, certainly not with our varieties. It has actually been tried in hazelnuts uh, by Brandon Miller's major professor. Um, but not hybrid hazelnuts, so. With European hazelnuts? It may have been American hazelnuts. I don't remember. I'd have to look back at that paper. Huh. Did it work? Yes, Must it have. did. Yeah. And then beyond rooting, the next step is having the, the stem continue to grow. Actually, that's key. Uh, rooting is, alone is not enough. You've got to have the plant survive and thrive after that. And do it in time before it goes dormant. Otherwise, exactly. it won't survive the winter. Yeah. Well, Stefan, anything else? Oh, so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see this in practice. I'm, I'm having a hard time visualize, visualizing what the band looks like and how long these stem cuttings are. And uh, I think it'd be helpful just to go out into the field and actually see it being done. Which reminds me, uh, Lois, you and Mark um, always forget to take pictures. So take pictures. We are attempting that. Um, when Les is along, he's much better at remembering to take pictures than we are. Yeah, good, good. Well, this has been great. Thanks, Lois. All right. Well, Jason, now that we've had the opportunity to hear about all the cool projects that uh, Lois and Mark at the University of Minnesota have been doing with hazelnuts, um, it would be great to get updates from you to hear about what you've got going on. So why don't you uh, go ahead and uh, just take it away? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to give an update. So I've got four projects that we've been working on right now. These days, my focus is all hazelnut propagation, trying to make copies of our best plants. And as you may know, tissue culture has not been working. And our other method of, of mound layering works, and it's working really well for some varieties, not all, but some. Uh, but it's super slow and it's super labor intensive, at least the way we're doing it. We don't have big stool beds set up with automation. Everything's by hand and relatively small numbers. So anyway, we've been looking for other methods. And so stem cuttings have been tried over the years, but never really in our research program or here in the upper Midwest. So we, um, in stem cuttings, you got to start with stock plants. Uh, stock plants would be your vigorous, actively growing, ideally juvenile plants that you can harvest stem cuttings from, softwood or hardwood, but in our case, softwood cuttings. Then you root those cuttings and get them to grow, and that you can make copies. So we had to start with stock plants, 
and we've we've got stock plants from two methods. One, we get them from the mound layering, and then uh, we've been making our own stock plants with grafting. And instead of grafting one bud onto a mature rootstock, we've actually been seed layer grafting. It's called or seed grafting, where we graft a one bud cutting from uh, a plant in the field. Let's take just take one that works well. Stape N76 is the breeding ID. Take a one bud cutting, and we can graft that onto a seed that's just sprouted. The seed's like you know a couple of days old. It's sprouted, and the hypocotyl is looks like a bean sprout. You graft that on there. You transplant the seedling. You grow it, and then the scion, the little piece of of budwood that you you grafted on, grows. Then, if it grows tall enough and long enough, you can actually root that piece of stem as a stem cutting. And we tried a method, what you'd call air layering into a Q plugs, it's like a peat moss plug. And uh, it didn't really work, which is okay because it doesn't necessarily have to grow on its own roots to be a stock plant. As long as we're only harvesting tissue from that original scion stem, then we've got stem cuttings. So we've got a couple thousand stock plants that we made this spring that are in the greenhouse actively growing and that'll serve as our base material for stem cuttings next year. The advantage here is we went from like one plant to a couple thousand versus mound layering. It's just like each year it's one to like 20. Uh, and so now with stem cuttings, we can even further that multiplication rate. So we've also been doing some work with softwood stem cuttings. We're getting good success with rooting close to 80, 90% on some genotypes. And now we wait to see if they'll regrow their buds because uh, these are one node cuttings, meaning they've got one inner node, one node, that's where the bud is and where the leaf is attached. And then in in that axle, the leaf is the bud. And if that bud doesn't grow, that cutting's worthless. So that's the that's the second part of the process. Get that little piece of inner node, the, the stem to root, and then get the bud to grow. So we'll know more here in, in a while. Uh, the other thing we've been working on on our, our what we call our joint performance trials. These, we've taken the top selections from our breeding program, from the Grimo breeding program in Ontario. We have selections from the Rutgers um, breeding program that are pure Avalana that may or may not be hardy for our region. And then some other uh, top selections from other breeders, growing them in common sites. So at the same location, and we've got six locations established. And then we have a subset of smaller on-farm trials that typically just have the selections from our breeding program. These are important because it's going to tell us how they're performing across a range of environments to give growers more confidence to plant this material once it's more widely available. So it's a lot of maintenance, weed control, uh, mulch, watering. So far, so good. We've had rain, but we're ready to water. Um, last year, the we had our first real data collection, our first harvest. They're finally old enough. The oldest plants were planted in 2017. So last year, we had pretty good yield data. From the Grimo plants, those are the first ones that went in. And Northern Blaze, hands down, the best plant so far uh, in our trials from the Grimo selections. The selections from our program and Rutgers and others are not yet bearing because they were added later. So once we get those, then we can really compare everything. But so that's a big piece of our project these days, keeping those things going. Um, we so also, how, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Um, so. How many years of, of data collection do you expect to do on these before you publish any results? Yeah, so we we publish annually, uh, to, so growers can follow along and see how how they perform. We definitely encourage them if they're making planting decisions to wait for three good years of data. You know, Northern Blaze did great last year. It looks like it's going to do well this year so far. Lots of flowers, um, but you know, 
three years of data is usually enough to say, yeah, this is this is real. And where can people go to find your results? MidwestHazelnuts.org. That's the, the one-stop shopping, the portal for all things hazelnuts in the Midwest. And uh, there's a whole section about buying plants. And in that section, there's the publications reporting on yields from these, these trials or performance from these trials. And there's also a mailing list you can sign up for uh, at that website, MidwestHazelnuts.org. And then your when new publications like that come out, you get a notification and you're the first to know. Awesome. Well, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing some results. Yeah. Okay. So the other part are clusters. So we've been trying to provide outreach education to growers. So most of who we work with are beginning growers who are interested in hazelnuts. Some are some people are really passionate about hazelnuts, but to be successful, they need good information. They need good support. They need good technical service. And that's what we try to provide through our grower clusters. So we've got seven of them across the upper Midwest. Each cluster has a cluster coordinator who leads the the, the outreach education and networking. And um, it's a good place if, if somebody's interested in hazelnuts to get started and meet other growers. You know, it's one thing to learn from us, but we know that growers learn from their peers a lot too. And so being able to go see a real life hazelnut planting and, and the owner operator and learn what it takes is, is invaluable. So we try to make that happen. Uh, in Wisconsin, there are three clusters. There's Northwest Wisconsin that I coordinate. There is the central Wisconsin area that's coordinated by Regina Hirsch and the Driftless region, which includes most of Southwestern uh, Wisconsin would be uh, David Bruce with the Savannah Institute. So if you're interested as a grower um, anywhere in the Midwest, go to our website, go to the, the grower resources and you'll find a whole page about these cluster coordinators get on their mailing list so you can get connected to the network and start start learning. Uh, and then finally, what we've been working on is the hazelnut processing. We got started with this years and years ago because we got to remember there is no nut industry in Wisconsin or for the upper Midwest for that matter. And so it's not a matter of a grower growing hazelnuts and then they just take their hazelnuts to the processor. Processors don't exist. You need crackers, cleaners, you need licensed facilities, sorters, all this stuff. And we're kind of stuck as growers, as beginning growers, because we don't really have enough hazelnut production to justify buying all this expensive equipment. And yet without that equipment, we can't get hazelnuts to market. So there's chicken and the egg problem. So we stepped in playing our role at the university as, as sort of a, an incubator or an entrepreneur support, economic development type, type uh, agency, if you will and built the hazelnut, UMHDI Hazelnut Processing Accelerator, which includes a processing incubator, that's what we call it, or a pilot facility up in Ashland. So we've built that out um, and been adding equipment over the years. And we finished our processing, boy, back the end of February. Uh, we did about 10,000 pounds this year and we've gotten way faster. Uh, last year we did like, or the year before we did like 4,000 pounds and we, it took us till June. Right. So wow. now we're 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 pretty much we feel like we're fast enough that it's it's economically viable and it's still subsidized such that in 2022, that crop you can bring up to Ashland and have it turned into a saleable kernel uh, at just the cost of of the Northland College's facility fee, because we actually use a shared kitchen uh, or a processing facility on Northland College's campus and they charge us a use fee to use it, but that's it. You don't have to pay for the equipment. You don't have to pay for labor. 
So, so any grower throughout the state of Wisconsin can take their harvest up there and, and have it processed. Is that right? Correct. We've had growers from Minnesota and folks from the UP of Michigan. So there's folks that are, you know, it's a great service because if you had to build this on your own, um, and, and especially if you're trying to, to meet food codes so you can sell in Wisconsin, uh, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to build this kind of a, a setup. Is there a certain window when people have to bring up their crop? Uh, well, the nice thing about hazelnuts is they can be stored. Um, you know, some people have said they've stored it for two years and they still taste good. We usually sit, recommend get them cracked and cleaned and sold within six months or, you know, have really good cold storage to keep them fresh because hazelnuts have a lot of oil and that oil can oxidize and go rancid. So you don't really want them sitting around that long. Um, so generally, you know, if you got to get them picked and dried and, and out of the husk that usually by middle to the end of October is when we start processing and then we'll continue through the winter months. Generally, because we don't have really great storage at the Northland facility, we want to get everything cracked and out of there uh, before the humidity comes in the spring uh, in the warm temperatures. So mm -hmm. that's that's generally our, our window. Mm -hmm. That's a great service. Yeah. So that's what we've been up to uh, the last you know couple of months and going forward, it's just a lot of field maintenance. And then when we get into the fall data collection, we got all these trial plants, we got to harvest them, collect the data, report the data, all that stuff, so. Great. Well, those are some really exciting things going on. And I look forward to seeing the results of the evaluations from this year. And I hope to visit your processing facility sometime as well. For sure. Anybody's welcome whenever. Just call me or email me to, to get a scheduled tour and show you around and hopefully bring the nuts up in the fall and get them processed. Cool. Well, thanks for the update, Jason. Really appreciate it. Yep. So with that, I'd like to thank our guests, Mark Hammond and Lois Brown from the University of Minnesota, as well as uh, Jason Fishbach, my co-host from UW-Madison, uh, for joining us today and giving us updates on their work regarding hazelnuts. And thanks to all of you as well for listening in. Uh, we look forward to bringing you another episode of the Cutting Edge podcast very soon. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.